Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, it's me, Kate Lister, jumping in once again to forewarn you that this episode will contain descriptions of sex, some fruity language and the odd swear word dropped when nobody was looking. So if that's not your cup of tea, you may want to skip this one. Ernest Bolton and Frederick Park, two young middle-class Victorian fellas who were absolutely hopeless at clerking jobs that their parents got for them. There's not much of a story there, but today on Betwixt the Sheets, we're not hearing about their dreary admin jobs. We're hearing about their alter egos. Witnessed in the streets and on the theatre circuit, winking at gentlemen and generally upsetting the establishment. Today, Betwixt the Sheets, I, Kate Lister, want to introduce you to Fanny and Stella. What do you look for a man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing the button. E-R-A! Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness has nothing to do with it, dearie. And welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, with me, Kate Lister. In 1870, two young women were hauled in front of a Bow Street magistrate's court, charged with the abominable crime of buggery. These girls were Fanny and Stella. But how did they get there? When did they start to dress in women's clothes? And did the judge who charged them have any legal leg to stand on? There is only one man who can help answer these questions, and that is Neil McKenna. Hello and thank you so much to Neil McKenna for joining me today. This is an absolute treat to talk to you betwixt the sheets. Thank you. I could talk to you about your work for forever, but the one I really want to talk to you about is Fanny and Stella, the young men who shocked Victorian Britain. Yeah. Okay, for those of us who don't know, who may be listening and thinking, who are these people? Can you tell us a little bit about who Fanny and Stella were? Well, Fanny and Stella were two rather silly young men. And they were running around London in the late 1860s. And at a time where gay men or men who have sex with men homosexuals, barely dared to show their face. But Fanny and Stella were completely outrageous. They didn't see anything wrong with their sexual orientation. 
and they love to drag up, they love to go to theatres, they love picking up men. They weren't averse to taking a few pounds from a gentleman if it was on offer, but then who isn't? <laughs> they performed in theatres, they did amateur theatricals. Fanny was the son of a judge, so lived in central London, so I would say he was upper middle class. Mm. Stella was the son of a stockbroker, which we tend today to associate with money, but it wasn't. It was more like a salesman in those days. And their family was beset by financial problems and they kept having to move. So they were two very silly boys and they were running around London flirting madly with everyone and everything they came into contact with. Fanny was unlucky in love, but Stella was very beautiful and met Lord Arthur Clinton, who was the son of a government minister. They lived together as man and wife or as man and man. Sometimes Stella would be in drag, sometimes he wouldn't be. So that was the setting. And then one evening outside the Strand Theatre, they'd gone to meet a rather foolish young man called Hugh Mundell, who was what we would call today straight. But he met Fanny and Stella in drag and was bewitched and bewildered by them. And they arranged to meet. And they told him that we are not women, we are men. By that point, he didn't seem to care. He was so in love with Stella particularly so they met and they went to the theatre and it was lovely. And then as they left the theatre, suddenly policemen appeared and attempted, not attempted, but in fact succeeded in arresting them and taking them down to Bow Street Station and charging them with all manner of terrible crimes. And it emerged that actually the police had been watching Fanny and Stella for some months not just a few days, but for mm. some months. And this was a kind of targeted intelligence operation. Quite why they were targeted, we don't know. Was it because Stella was going out with a lord who was the son of a government minister? We don't know. But anyway, they'd been watched, followed, observed, and finally they were arrested. And not only were they arrested, but they were charged and tried in Westminster Hall, which is part of the Houses of Parliament. Now, that's the place where King Charles I was tried for treason. It's the place where exceptional state crimes were charged. And they were before the Lord Chief Justice of England and the Attorney General and the Solicitor General prosecuted. So it was taking a sledgehammer to crack a very small nut. So this book is the story of their arrest and trial, but it's also the story of them, because when I started looking for another book to do, which is actually a hard thing, as you probably know, Kate, mm. I couldn't find anything. My publisher, who was, wanted me to do Lawrence of Arabia again, and I said, look, I can probably make something of the Turkish gang rape scene, but it's all been done. There's nothing left to do. So I wanted something fresh. And I woke up one morning and I thought of Fanny. 
and Stella. <laughs> so I started researching and I actually enjoy the research part of it more than anything mm-hmm. else and discovered that there was a full trial transcript in the National Archives, which is extraordinary. I mean... It really is. Very few Victorian trials were recorded. And when they were recorded, they were done in shorthand, and then the shorthand got lost. This trial had been recorded in shorthand and then transliterated into longhand. And the transcript was that thick. It was about 12 inches thick. Wow. Which was extraordinary. So I spent a year going to the National Archives, transcribing this. And what I realised was that not only did I have the story of the trial, but in all the surrounding evidence from Stella's mum, Mrs Bolton, Mrs Marianne (laughs) Bolton, I had a window into the lives of two men who had sex with men in the Mm. 1860s. And that was extraordinary. I had a window into the life of Fanny, who had syphilis on the anus and went Mm. to get treatment, which was an extraordinary record of Fanny going to Charing Cross Hospital, seeing a doctor, being treated for this chancre of the anus. And not only did we have that tale, but we had the doctor's reaction, we had the doctor's comments, we had his testimony in court. So suddenly I could be catapulted into the life of young men who had sex with men in the 1860s. And that seemed to me extraordinary, partly because I started life as a sort of gay activist. I was a journalist. I worked for the Pink Paper and Capital Gay, and my career started the same week that Clause 28 was started. Oh, wow. So I've always been someone who is cares about history, about mm. the truth, about our world. I've seen it as my job up till now to somehow try and reconstruct and reclaim gay history, which, of course, has been willfully decimated, willfully destroyed, suppressed, you name it. I've talked long enough. No, I want you to keep talking forever. I think the thing that really shocked me when I read your book was I was expecting to sort of hear the story of lives lived in the shadows, of shame and about how it would all be secret. But it wasn't. Fanny and Stella were really loud and proud and there was nothing subdued about what they were doing. Yeah. I mean, they were like, there was no mistaking them either. I found that, did you find that quite shocking? I found it extraordinary. I found their exuberance. Good word. And their joy in their lives wonderful and refreshing. And you use the word shame, which is a very good word, because 20 years later, Lord Alfred Douglas, Oscar Wilde's lover, Bosey, wrote a poem called In Praise of Shame, which, of course, came up at Oscar Wilde's trial, which was all about shame being love between men, sex between men. And it was extraordinary that these young men were exuberant. They did not walk with downcast gaze. They were not self-oppressed. If anything, they felt entitled 
And it's an extraordinary thing. I remember being in a gay club in London in about 1993. So most of the battles had been fought and won. Clause 28 had been won. We had successfully resisted that invasion of our civil rights. And I was in this club and standing there sipping my bottle of beer or whatever. And this young queen, aged about 18, flamboyantly dressed, just walked straight past me, knocked me over. My bottle of beer fell to the ground and not even an apology. There was a toss of his mane. (laughs) And I thought, I could be angry about this, but actually I'm not. I'm kind of thrilled because this young queen doesn't have to go through what I went through as a young gay man of all the shame, all the impression and the accreted weight of two or 3,000 years of homophobia, hatred, persecution, imprisonment, torture, execution, all that has gone. And I felt happy and pleased that that had happened. And that's how I felt when I read about Fanny and Stella, although the ending was not 100% happy. They lived in the moment. They did. And there's descriptions of them. They first came to the police's attention when they, so I get this right, is they weren't dressed as women, but they were walking around the streets with a lot of makeup on and winking at men. Yes. Well, of course, Stella had been arrested for a fray in the Haymarket. And this affray turned out that Stella had dragged up had gone to the Haymarket, which was the centre of London's prostitution. So if you can imagine Mm. the British Empire with perhaps half a million more men in uniform, sex swept under the table. So the Haymarket and Coventry Street in London were absolutely, the prostitutes were 10 deep. Mm. Stella had gone to the Haymarket and got into an affray with a female prostitute who had accused her of trying to steal her pitch. Stella was arrested, and as the policeman who arrested her said, it was more for her protection than for the affray. Oh, Stella. Um, And Stella must have been about 18 when this happened, so it was wonderful. Rookie error there, Stella. So, and they did walk around. They went to a theatre repeatedly, which was a known kind of cruising area. Mm. And the manager who had been part of a circus act many years before, he had a very interesting history, called the police because he was fed up of young queens coming in and trolling for trade and upsetting his customers. They they were on the radar of the police. I think that one of the things I really loved about your book, and I know that this is something that there have been critics who have been a bit snooty about it, I love the fact that it is joyful that you haven't subscribed to this idea that these must have been tragic terrible lives and I think the reason I empathize with that a lot is because in my last book that I wrote about the history of sex work is the major criticism that I got back from some feminists is it wasn't sad enough it wasn't like it wasn't Mm. miserable I, I hadn't accurately portrayed the the horror of it and I've always felt that like but that doesn't that that's a part of it, but it doesn't capture everything. And, and what I was really refreshed about reading your book, there's this thriving subculture and there was a lot of joy. Mustn't forget the awfulness as well, but that really leapt off the pages at me. They were having a damn good time. 
They were having a ball, and they literally had a ball. Several. They had a ball at what is now a hotel on the Strand, and they had、um, a drag ball, which was quite wonderful. And as to critics, yes, I mean, I think as someone who writes about the history of sex, which is what I've done in two books, you are always going to be torn, particularly by heterosexual critics. Who do not want the narrative to be disrupted? When I wrote the Oscar Wilde book, I disrupted the narrative because the narrative of Oscar Wilde was that he was a happily married heterosexual man with two sons. Then he was seduced, criminally seduced, into homosexuality by Robbie Ross in a public lavatory, and that action led to his downfall, syphilis. Imprisonment and early death, and that natural history. A lot of heterosexual critics are invested in that. They're invested、mm. in the fact that gay men, lesbians, sex workers, all had terrible lives, and that somehow or other we've come to more enlightened times. And I don't want crumbs off the table of heterosexuals. I've occasionally had other things in my mouth from heterosexuals, but I don't <laughs> do crumbs. You know, I remember I got the worst review in the world, and I think it was because I had dared to write a book about gay men who were happy, who were positive, who had a life. And who didn't conform to this awful, sad、mm. natural history? And I think people saw me as uppity. I found that all my life. Actually, people have found me uppity and difficult and problematic because I don't toe the party line. Because you don't present the history as tragic victims no. who should be pitied by heterosexual. Society. Well, Voltaire wrote that the one duty we owe to history is to tell the truth. So I'm actually quite concerned with the truth. I think,、mm. and, you know, I'm not saying that there isn't an epic galactic sea of sadness, persecution, misery, and awfulness. I'm not saying that most prostitutes thrived and survived, but some did. You know, some female prostitutes were good at their job. They found punters. They made money. They bought little businesses. They had children. They raised their family. It's not always a kind of monochrome depression. And I just wanted to mention in this podcast that if you go back to 1710 to the Mollies of London, the Mollies were fantastic as well. They were.、Yeah. Effeminate gay men, effeminate men who had sex with men, who established a subculture in about 1700, less than 40 years after Cromwell's Commonwealth was overthrown and Puritans were gone. And we had these men who had bars, who camped around, who had a sense of humour. Anyway, let's move on. I love that. One of the things I think that surprised me about Fanny and Stella as well is that, and again, this is where the, the stigma and the stereotype comes in, is they weren't from impoverished backgrounds. They were from quite affluent middle class、yes. backgrounds. And I know that the, sort of the case sort of explode onto the scene and then vanish again. Have you been able to find anything about their early lives? Where did they come from? How did they? When did they start dragging up? Is there any sense of that? Well, we know from. I could only include 
a fraction in the book of what was in the archives. But we know that from Mrs. Marianne Bolton, who is every gay man should have Mrs. Marianne Bolton as their mum because she was fiercely wonderful and she encouraged Stella, who was called Ernest, in amateur theatricals. I mean, Ernest slash Stella was introduced to Lord Arthur Clinton at a dinner party at Mrs. Marianne Bolton's house. And reading between the lines, she sort of practically threw them together and allowed them to flirt. I mean, she was a fantastic mother. A wing mother. So I think a lot of Stella's joie de vivre, her exuberance, her jubilation in life comes from the fact that her mother, his mother, was totally supportive and totally pro-men having sex with men and used to help with the theatricals and would help with the costumes and would talk about little disagreements, i.e. screaming rows between the queens that she tried to smooth over. So that was wonderful. And Fanny, who was called Frederick, Freddie, had an older brother who was gay called Harry, who had also been arrested four or five years earlier for soliciting a policeman in a mews in central London. Now, we know from other sources that the police used the men who had sex with men community in London for sexual relief. There's a fantastic Mm. letter from an Irish male prostitute called Malcolm, I think Sinclair, who's writing to his pa, not his real pa, in Dublin. Daddy. I'm having a fabulous, I'm paraphrasing, I had a fabulous time in London. The police are so sort of sexy and handsome. I had a sucking (laughs) one the other night and a fucking (laughs) one the night after, and I don't know whether I'm coming or going. And So we know that there was a kind of, you know, symbiotic relationship between Mm. the police and the sex working community. And Harry had approached this policeman. He suggested that the policeman was inviting him to suck him off. And that may well have been the case. But then, and we don't know what happened, but then he was arrested. Then he was in court and he did a runner. So he was living under an assumed name in Scotland. And partly because of Fanny and Stella's arrest, the police found him. Oh, okay. And he died. We don't know what he died of, but we think it was probably syphilis as well. So those two brothers had a very unhappy time. And a very extraordinary time. Your older brother is arrested, went on the run lives under an assumed name and then the police catch him and put him back into prison. So it was extraordinary. Neil and I will be back in just a few moments. (laughs) 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, it's Kate. I'm just barging in here for 30 seconds to tell you about a new podcast which I think you might enjoy. When two Financial Times reporters started digging into the porn industry, they made quite the discovery. Porn quite literally relies on its performers to bear it all. Yet information about the people and businesses who run the industry is kept like some kind of state secret. On the Hot Money podcast, hosts Patricia Nielsen and Alex Barker take listeners inside the porn industry as they try to uncover who is really pulling the strings. Their reporting reveals a story that goes way beyond a single person. A story that includes billionaires, tech geniuses and the most powerful finance companies in the world. Listen to Hot Money wherever you get your podcasts. It's hard to sort of underestimate just how big this scandal was. Was I don't know if the older brother, if that caused a huge scandal, but certainly Fanny and Stella. I mean, this was headline news, wasn't it? People were obsessed with this. It was headline news around the world. Around the world, yeah. Around the world, you know. I mean, it was all over the newspapers in America. It was in European newspapers. And it was in every single newspaper in Britain. And there were little booklets, little penny dreadfuls about the trial were published and sold for a penny outside the court. There were images of Fanny and Stella and the principals in the case in newspapers. There were also photographs of them, but they couldn't be reproduced in newspapers. But there is a collection of photographs of Fanny and Stella in drag with Lord Arthur and out of drag. And they're so beautiful, those images as well. I'd, they are absolutely beautiful. I'd urge anybody to go and look them up. What were they charged with? Because this is quite a crucial point, isn't it? Is So they're arrested at the theatre, you're dressed as women. What's the charge? They were charged with conspiracy to commit buggery. Mm. And the charge sheet is extremely long and extremely repetitive. And basically they 
the American consul in Edinburgh and a man called Louis Hurt and various other people in absentia were charged with conspiracy to commit buggery. Now, you know there's a problem with the British state when it starts doing conspiracy charges. It's a weird charge, isn't it, that one? It's a weird charge. You've got the Birmingham Six, they were charged with conspiracy. Conspiracy is a kind of state charge. It's not really a charge about the crime itself. It's about the conspiracy to commit the crime. Mm. And I think this was a very bad decision by the prosecuting authorities. They thought that we need to stop this. We have young men who have sex with men openly, exuberantly, joyfully going around. It wasn't the actual acts of gross indecency, although that wasn't yet a crime, but of sodomy that they seemed to be worried about. It was the fact that it was like a a plague, a contagion. If you go through the newspapers of the time, as I've done till I'm almost blind, I mean, people think I'm half blind because of masturbation, but it's not (laughs) true. It's reading Victorian newspapers. You will find dozens, hundreds, perhaps even thousands of cases that come up in the courts of men accused of having sex with men in other in public lavatories, in public places. They, those crimes are punished, but they're not punished in the same way. Mm. There's never a question of conspiracy. So I think this was a British state decision to somehow turn Fanny and Stella and their associates into a state show trial to hold them up Mm. to public exposure and to say, this is awful. Mm. This is what happens. This is a public decision. And of course, the problem with conspiracy charges is they're very notoriously hard to prove. They had to prove that Fanny and Stella willfully conspired with Louis Hurt and with John Fisk, the American consul, and various other people to, I think the phrase they use is, combine and confederate to commit buggery. Well, that's a very hard charge to prove, particularly when there was no evidence. If they had just gone and they'd said, right, we're charging you with buggery. We've had your bottoms examined by six eminent medical men and they are all agreed that they show, you know, very obvious signs of being sodomized. So this is one of our pieces of evidence. They would have been convicted and they would have been sent to prison for 10 years to life, but they would have probably lasted three or four years and died in prison, which is what happened. Yeah. But because they went for this curious group conspiracy charge, which I think was entirely about, you know, the public interest, they got off because the prosecution failed to make the case. And because Mrs. Mary Ann Bolton stood up in court and said, my darling Ernest is such a lovely boy, he'd never do anything like that. You know, he's always been so good to his mother. And people were convinced. The prosecution failed to make the charge of conspiracy. So they were released. Because that's, it's really difficult to prove that. How, and they did, they failed to prove it, despite the fact that they did have their anuses examined by doctors and yes. notes 
putting down, which is humiliating and, and terrible. And Fanny had a shanker, had a syphilitic shanker on her anus, you know, I mean... <gasps> when I read that, I was like, that must have been so painful to have... You know... Terribly painful and a death sentence. Oh, not nice at all, is it? Uh, but they got off. And what I loved when I read about that in your book is there was a big cheer yeah. in the court when yeah. there was... Because all of this kind of pushes back against the idea that everybody in the 19th century was horrendously homophobic, that, that there was no toleration whatsoever, because you've got these little examples of like, well, it can't have been unanimously like that. So it's the fact that there was a cheer in the court... The fact that Mrs. Mary Ann Bolton, which, by the way, how good is that name? Anyone who doesn't know, a Mary Ann was a Victorian slang for a male sex worker, so perfecto. That's right. She is fully supporting her son and willing to go into the dock and say, oh, what a good boy he is. There is evidently this subculture is known about, and although it was punished and criminalised, it just doesn't seem that it was, A, as hidden away as we might like to think it is, B, as roundly condemned as people like to think it was. And I think that's something really positive from the book. Yes. I mean, I d you know, let's not go overboard. Yeah, let's not get carried away. You know, half the population was supporting Fanny and Stella. Mm. I think most people who were reading the newspapers did not really understand what was going on. I think That's they, an interesting point. Okay. I mean, I think the, the widespread ignorance of the existence of male-to-male -male sexuality... And the widespread ignorance that it was a crime. I mean, mm. my own theory is is that right up to modern times, sex between men was far more common than anybody wants to imagine. And that people did it because they didn't really understand that it was illegal. Mm. And that men would have sex with other men and then be straight as well. It was possible to have two truths. I've met guys who've told me that they're heterosexual but, you know, who want to have sex with another man. One of the best, early on in the AIDS epidemic, there was a huge University of Sydney study of the main cruising ground in Sydney, Australia. And they interviewed hundreds, if not thousands of men who'd visited these cruising grounds. And they said, will you answer some questions? And they asked them to define themselves. Are you gay, straight or bisexual? By far the most of the guys define themselves as heterosexual. And when they said, well, okay, you're defining yourself as heterosexual, but you've just been to a gay cruising gown where presumably you've had some kind of sexual interaction with another man. How do you square that? And they said, we didn't kiss. Wow. And I think that illustrates a kind of phenomenon that's poorly understood, badly explored, and that we haven't really done, that lots and lots and lots of men, right up to, let's say, 1940, would have sexual encounters ranging from mutual masturbation to oral sex to anal sex, and didn't think anything of it. They saw it as a kind of, quote, normal behaviour, an abnormal behaviour, but also simultaneously normal, that they were always going to marry and have children, but they could also ha find sexual relief. And I think that, and this is speculation, but I think in the 19th century, sex between men was quite commonplace, quite prevalent, particularly in all male situations like the mm. army, and also given the absence of 
available females to have sex with. I think it was commonplace. I think people saw it, but they didn't see it as a kink, a perversion, an alternative. Mm. They just saw it as something that was. That's my own view. I mean, you have stories of soldiers in British India, and there would be boys who would go up to soldiers and they would pull out a long white cloth from their anus to show how clean it was for the soldiers. Wow. So it was kind of preempting the idea that anal sex equals dirt. So I think there was a lot of sex between men. I don't think people were aware of it. I don't think the people doing the sex were aware mm. that they were committing some kind of crime. So I think there was a kind of low-grade toleration and acceptance that this went on between men. I don't think women knew anything about it. And I think the problem with Fanny and Stella, as was the problem with Oscar Wilde, as was the problem with the Mollies, is that they dared to put their head above the parapet and they Mm. dared to say, this is not just sex, this is identity. And that's the problem. And that was the problem, of course, with Clause 28 and the Thatcher government. It wasn't the fact that gay men were having sex with other gay men. It was that they were creating an identity. And, yeah. And when the Sexual Offences Act was, was passed in 1967, I think it was Lord Annan who made a speech in the House of Lords and said, you know, now that we've granted you some civil rights and some freedoms to live your life, in return, we ask that you will, quote, comport yourselves with dignity, unquote. So I think it's always been about identity. The flashpoints mm-hmm. of persecution are when identity rears its ugly head, when the Mollies had pubs and would define themselves as the Mollies. Mm. That was crucial. The crucial fact was that they had created a Molly identity. Fanny and Stella had created their drag identity. There was no shame. Mm. There was no hiding. There was no secrecy. And this has always been the problem for the British state, is that identity, sex is ill-advised, frowned upon, probably, possibly, certainly criminal. But identity is dangerous. And that's the issue that we've always had the problem with. The gay Mm. identity, the men having sex with men identity is dangerous. We cannot possibly allow identity to take off. So it needs to be chopped off. I, I think, yeah, that's a fantastic way of putting it. Is it sex is something you do, but identity is somebody that that's who you are. And that's very different. Is there a sense of what happened to Fanny and Stella after they got let off? Do we know where they went, what happened to them? We know exactly what happened to them. Fanny went with Harry to America. Harry died and then Fanny died, presumably of that troublesome anal shankar. Not a nice death, but they both died and they're both buried in America. Stella, Ernest Bolton, changed his name to Ernest Bine. And for a good number of years, he, well, he went to America, he performed in America and he toured Britain with his brother Gerard, who was married and had a child. The last chapter of my book is really 
about the death of Stella. And it is a complete and entire camp fantasy where I see Stella dying and ascending into a sort of sodomitic queer heaven where all the sex offenders are. And people had problems with that. Mm. A lot of people had problems with that. I mean, I've had hate mail. I'd, I'd love to keep talking to you about this, but I'm going to have to wrap it up. But one of the things I can't let you go without talking about, just because you're talking about hate mail, is is the first contact that I had with you, which was before the pandemic, I think it was 2019. And I emailed you about a student of mine. And this wasn't hate mail. This honestly, it broke me. I sat there crying in my office for a good long while. Um, I teach on a range of modules and I was teaching on Victorian culture. And it was third years and the students were invited to find their own text, find their own subject. And, you know, you do you. And it was a student who we'll just call Jay for this. And he'd been kind of quite quiet in the class. And I was really surprised that he wanted to do Victorian sexuality. And then he'd found your book and... He became really, really upset with like researching it and finding out about it. And he'd come to the office and he would sit and we'd talk about your book and about Fanny and Stella and about the court records and we'd go through it. And the whole time I think I didn't expect him to do this, but I'm really glad you are. And then and then he got a really good grade, not off he went. And then it was a couple a year or so later he came into the office and he explained that oh, it still gets me, you know, that he'd been suicidal at the time. He'd been struggling with not only his sexuality, but he wanted to explore drag. He wanted to cross-dress and he hadn't been able to articulate that and he had really, really struggled with it. And it was finding your book and being allowed to read about these lives and because it was history and on a course, it was kind of a safer space for him to do it. And because he'd read your book he had started to explore cross-dressing and he developed an alter ego. I think she was called Sasha and she was going out and doing performances at open mic nights and he was a whole different person Mm. and I'd had no idea. I'd had no idea that he was going through that, that your work did that for him and I'm so pleased that it did. But I was wondering, Mm. what's it like to get that kind of feedback, to know that your book did that? Well, it's it's extraordinary because as a writer, it's basically a vow of poverty, probably chastity. It's lonely. And then you are torn limb from limb by critics who have safe jobs and plenty of money. And they there's not a lot of positives in being a writer. Occasionally you get nice letters, which is lovely. But when you realise that your work has actually perhaps saved somebody from committing suicide and perhaps helped them find a way towards happiness or towards self-acceptance, towards joy, it's wonderful and it's humbling and very moving. It remains one of the most profound moments that I've had as a, a lecturer. It was just listening to his journey and he was a whole different person sat there talking to me. I'm getting misty-eyed just thinking about it now, but I was so pleased that I was be able to to share that with you so you know what impact. Well, I was delighted and it was certainly one of the high points of my not terribly distinguished writing career, but it is lovely to know that you've had an impact and that your work means something 
And if it means something to one person in that way, then that's wonderful. I mean, I hope it means something to more people. But I do it because I think our community needs its history. And we've been silenced and censored and our history has been decimated and burnt and destroyed. That it's quite important to have that history for people because we do need it. And we can't just live in isolation. No. Oh, and on that note, Neil McKenna, thank you so much. You have been an absolute revelation. Thank you for talking to me today. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much to our guest, Neil McKenna. You are an absolute juggernaut of information. I hope that you've enjoyed joining us. If you like what you've heard, please don't forget to like, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In the next few weeks, we've got an episode from the Museum of Sex Objects and don't miss our previous chat about poppers, BDSM and boob jobs. All different episodes, I promise. Join me again, Betwixt the Sheets, the History of Sex Scandal and Society, a podcast by History Hit. This podcast includes music by Epidemic Sounds. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.